Good morning. We finished our series on reasons to believe. Um, we talked about why you can trust in the Bible and also some other ways that you can get to know that God is real and that God uh, loves you. But that doesn't mean that we are not talking about reasons to believe anymore. We're starting a new series on the book of First John. And the first, let me just turn that on. The uh, book of First John is actually going to give us more reasons to believe because the author is someone who claims to know Jesus personally. So when we look at the very beginning of the first chapter, which is what we're looking at today uh, in the White Bible, it's page 984. And the author starts by saying, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This is the one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. So he's repeating that over and over again. We've seen him, we've touched him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, just in case you didn't catch it the first time or the second time, um, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you so that you may fully share our joy. So a little bit of background about this book and who wrote it. And so based on the textual evidence that is presented in this book, uh, the similarities that it has with the Gospel of John, as well as the writings of the um, early church that confirmed this, the writer has been identified as John, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, the son of Zebedee, so not to be confused with John the Baptist. Um, and he was one of the, the early church leaders who you know, began the, the movement that became Christianity. And he actually outlived a lot of the other disciples. And so he went on to write um, the book of Revelations and, and the other letters as well. So we believe that John wrote this probably towards the latter part of his life, so around A.D. Uh, 70 to 90. And rather than the letter, it's actually a letter. And instead of it being addressed to a specific person or a specific church, it's quite general. So we believe that he meant this to be circulated around the, the churches um, in that time. And why did he write this letter? If you read the whole book, the whole letter, um, you'll see that there are hints of division and deception in the church, people starting to doubt um, the teachings, the original teachings of the apostles. And so John says, hey, I want you guys to, to go back to what I testified to you. That's why he kept saying, I saw it, I touched it, I heard it, and I'm sharing it again with you so that you can focus and go back to the original teachings. And he says, I'm doing all this so that we can come back to oneness, fellowship, unity, not only with each other, but he says, also with God. And in that process of coming together in fellowship with God and each other, he says, you will experience joy. And I don't know about you, but I want to live with joy, right? We want to have joy. And, and Simon's been talking about that, living with purpose. And there's a difference between living for the pursuit of happiness and living with joy. And because of the fellowship of God and each other, that kind of joy uh, isn't circumstantial, 
It's not dependent on successes or uh, what's going on or suffering, but it's a joy that you have internally that stays with you no matter what. So how do we get that joy? And so John is about to go into um, how we can come to that joy. And I want to read to you, it's quite a short chapter, so I want to read to you the rest of the chapter, but we're going to focus on a few verses. So here's the rest of, um, having trouble with this, James. There we go. Um, I think the battery might be dead. Or I'm just not pressing well. Thanks. So the rest of the chapter goes on to say, This is the message we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then this is the passage I want to focus on today. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So John says, hey, we have all sinned and we all have sin. And there's a slight difference there because not only do we do selfish things, not only do we think judgmental thoughts, and not only do we do hurtful things to one another, but we also have sin. In other words, we all have the tendency to be selfish within us that can exhibit itself through actions and words and attitudes. And so he says, look, we all have it. And so if we deny it, then we're actually lying. We're, we're, being, we're being blind. But if we confess it, he says, we can be forgiven and we can be cleansed. But if we're not willing to be honest and vulnerable to God and to each other, then we cannot be transformed. Do you remember a few months ago, I preached a sermon on no more fear of shame. And I talked about Dr. Brene Brown and her TED Talk um, that had over 32 million, million views on YouTube. Um, her TED Talk, she did several. One was on the power of vulnerability, and the other one was on shame, right? And if you remember, I talked about how, based on her research, and this is secular research um, into human behavior, human psychology, etc., she discovered that the ingredients that cause shame are secrecy, as well as uh, silence, right? And she says, as well as judgment. And what heals shame then are courage to be vulnerable, compassion and empathy for each other, and connection and sense of belonging. And I unpacked that in that sermon. If you want to go back and look at it on our YouTube channel, just look for the No More Fear of Shame. But I want to kind of bring back today is that, remember how we talked about how the reason why shame is such a, a hurtful emotion and condition in our hearts is that shame, because it's born of secrecy and silence, makes us wear masks. Do you remember that? It makes us pretend everything's fine when inside we're hurting or inside we are burdened. Um, and so mask after mask after mask, not only to our friends and family, but also to God, because it becomes a habit with us. So if you ever catch yourself kind of going into prayer, but you kind of go into, you know, automatic function. Dear God, thank you for this day. Please be with me. Da-da-da-da-la. And it's this formulaic 
chant rather than an honest, heartfelt conversation. And I think one of the reasons we go into that mode is because we're putting on a mask. We're so used to pretending. We're so used to acting. But the truth is, that kind of constant putting on of who we want people to think we are is exhausting. And not just draining, but also it creates then within our hearts this dichotomy between who we really are and who we want to be and who we try to be, and it leads to lack of joy, lack of peace. So in order for us to have freedom from the masks, in order for us to experience the fullness of joy and the fellowship that God wants for us, we have to be willing to confess and to be honest, to be vulnerable with God. The truth is, so many of us have put on so many layers and masks that we don't even know how to get out of it. Have you ever read or seen The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? Um, somebody borrowed my entire collection, and I can't find it. So if it's, if it's you, I can't remember who borrowed it. I want it back. But um, The Chronicles of Narnia is a whole series, and in one of the books, um, The Dawn of the, uh, sorry, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it talks about this new character um, named Eustace Clarence Scrub. And I love how C.S. Lewis says, you know, there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved his name, you know. Because <laughs> um, he's a whiny, annoying, arrogant kid, okay? And he's, he's the cousin of the main characters, and uh, they're so annoyed that they have to spend the summer with him. And he just makes everyone miserable. But the irony is, he doesn't realize it. He thinks everyone else is annoying. He thinks everyone else is, is causing the misery. So part of the story is written from his perspective and you get into his head and he's like, ugh, these people, these cousins and Narnia. And, you know, he's so angry, right, and bitter, but he thinks he's wonderful. Well, because of his, you know, C.S. Lewis calls it his dragonish greed um, and, and attitude, what happens in this, you know, make-believe story is that he becomes uh, like a dragon. He turns into a dragon. And he's very unhappy because all of a sudden, you know, he's isolated from the other, other people. There's, you know, he's ugly, he's, he's stuck. And so he's very unhappy. But through that process, he realizes that, yeah, he was kind of a pain in the butt. And he realizes that other people are actually kind. He's beginning to realize this. And, and, and finally, he meets Aslan, who is the lion um, that throughout the series represents Jesus. And Aslan leads this dragon Eustace to a garden on top of the mountain, and he leads him to a well in the center of the garden. And Eustace realizes that if he gets into this well, it'll, it'll help him because he's in so much pain because he had taken this bracelet and put it on as a boy, and when he became a dragon, um, that bracelet's too tight, and so it was causing him a lot of pain. And so he thinks, oh, I'm going to get into this, get into this well. But then Aslan says, you have to get undressed first. And then he's like, oh, I, I guess dragons do have, you know, skin that you can shed. And so he, he starts to claw at himself to get, get his skin off. And to his delight, the skin comes off. And he tries to get in, but he sees himself in the reflection. And he's still got all his scales. And he's still, you know, as dragony as ever. So he claws again, 
peels off another ugly layer, goes in, but oh, he still has it. He keeps trying and realizes that he just can't get it off. And then let me read to you what, what C.S. Lewis actually says, because he words it so well. Then the lion said, and this is from Eustace's perspective, but I don't know if it spoke, how, to, how it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy, oh, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only then they didn't hurt, there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. And of course, this is all symbolic of what happens when we finally come face to face with God, and we say, okay, God, take all the layers of masks off. The mask we have for our friends, the mask we have for our coworkers, the mask we have on Facebook, the mask we have even for those closest to us, take it all off. Take it all off. And when God finally then can get to that deepest part of our hearts, right? When he takes all the layers off, it, it is sometimes a painful process. It's not easy to be vulnerable, to surrender and say, okay, do it. Show me all the ugliness that needs to come off. But when we do let God come to that deepest, most vulnerable part of ourselves, we get to experience the joy, the freedom, the healing that only God can give. Because no matter how much we try to take it off ourselves, we can't. But when we let God have a go, He can make us human again into the image of God that he created us to be and he gives us new clothes he covers our nakedness and our shame and he makes us whole this is how another sinner who confessed described that experience this is in the book of Psalm page 454 of your white bibles the writer says oh what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. 
There is joy in living in complete honesty. There is joy in being forgiven. Imagine if someone came and paid off the rest of your mortgage on your house. Or if they paid off the rest of your hex. Or all your credit card bills. Imagine the joy that you would experience if that happened today, right? The thousands of dollars and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt gone in a moment. You would be pretty happy and you would be telling all your friends and you'd be throwing a party. Well, I want to tell you, God has forgiven you all your sins. The debt of all your sins that you could never repay Jesus has paid that price. That's why Christians have joy, because we have been forgiven. We should be the happiest people on earth, because God takes something that we can never repay and says, you know what? Don't worry about it. Go back to that verse in 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Here's another one. This is one of my favorites. Psalm 103, which is page 490 in the White Bibles. He does not punish us for our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. And I want to emphasize that point <clears throat> that God is a loving parent. And you know, having become a parent, it helps me understand a little bit of what God is trying to portray. Because I love my sons, Micah and Joshua, as you know, and as you know, I have to forgive them a lot. <laughs> um, and I ask them to confess. Now, why, why do I have them confess? I know what they did, right? But I, I, I ask them to confess, and I teach them how to confess. And, and the way that I teach them is I, I ask them to come over, and I say, I ask them, hey, wh- what, what did you do, right? And, they'll, and I say they, but you know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> we'll say, I, I wrote on the wall, right? And then, and then um, the response is, okay, well, do you think that was a good choice? No. Okay. So what do you think you should say? Because now there's something on the wall and mommy has to clean it up and you're going to help me. But what do you think you should say? And then he'll say, sorry. And I say, no, a little more, please. Sorry for what? Right? Then he has to say, sorry for writing on the wall. And are you going to do it again? No. Okay. And I have to believe that he won't because <laughs> love is, believes in all things, right? Um, and so there is this process I'm trying to teach him about confession, which is that it's not just about saying sorry, right? And it's not just about saying it for the sake of saying it. But I'm trying to get him to say what it is that he did so he realizes that he actually did wrong. Somehow through that act of confession, he will realize that he actually did wrong. And confession leads us to repentance, Excuse me. Because confession is the, is, is the act of, of saying, here's what I did wrong. But repentance is actually the attitude of wanting to change. The attitude of wanting to change. 
And confession leads us to repentance. God doesn't ask us to to change. He just asks us to confess. Knowing that as we confess and as we come near to him, that we will want change. Because Christianity is not just a religion, it's a relationship. What I'm trying to teach Micah is that when you do something wrong, you make an apology to restore the relationship. You can't just go on pretending like everything's fine. Apologies, confessions, honesty, vulnerability are essential for building healthy and vibrant relationships. And Christianity is a relationship between us and God and us and each other. And so God says, confess your sins to each other and also confess your sins to me so that we can have fellowship, so that our relationship can become restored, so we can be one. Because it's not that God runs away from us when we sin, it's that we run away from God. Remember Adam and Eve, when they sinned, first thing they did was they hid. And you don't see God coming and yelling at them or God running all the other way. You see God coming, walking in the cool of the evening, not in the heat of the day when he's angry. No, he comes and he says, where are you? And he gently draws them out. and And he knows what they did, but he asks them, why are you hiding? And, you know, did you eat the fruit? Yes, he gets them to confess. Why did you do it? Because he's trying to get them to realize that what they did separated them and now they need restoration. So he covers their nakedness. He restores that, that relationship that he had with them and that's what he's hoping to do with us. Every time that we sin, he wants us to confess so that we can come back into God's presence without fear. Right? That's that we can come and feel safe in his presence again. There was a man named David who was a king of Israel, and God called him a man after his own heart. But you know what? He made a lot of, I won't even call them mistakes. He did terrible things. He, he lied. He cheated. He murdered. It's, it's pretty bad. Um, and there's so much more that he's done that people you know, don't even know about. He's famous for those three things. But after his sin, right, he comes to God, and, and Psalm chapter 51, uh, which is page 465 in your white Bibles, um, describes his experience and his attitude and his confession after his sin. And it actually says that in Psalm 51, there's a little subscript that says, this is David's confession after his sin with Bathsheba, okay, who tells us the context. And I just want to highlight verses 10 to 12. Because before verses 1 to 9, you know, David's confessing. And then he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. You see, David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect, but because he was always wanting to be in that genuine relationship with God, right? That restoration where, where he and God are able to talk face to face and, and, and not hurt each other anymore and be able to move past um, what has happened. And God wants a genuine friendship with us. He doesn't want our lip service. He doesn't want a polite acquaintanceship, right? Where we say all the right things, but secretly we actually don't feel that way. 
He wants us to be angry at him. He wants us to doubt. He wants us to tell him exactly how we feel. Remember Job? He was a character in the Bible whom God said was perfect and there was no fault in him. But if you look at the book of Job and what Job says to God, it's pretty shocking. At one point, Job calls God Satan, <laughs> which is pretty intense. Satan actually is, means enemy. And, and Job says, you are acting like my enemy. That's a pretty harsh thing to say to God. Didn't faze God at all. God liked the fact that Job was talking directly to him and was arguing with him and was, was demanding an answer and, you know, had that kind of trust in God that God wanted honesty and vulnerability. Whereas Job's friends were saying all these platitudes about God. Oh, God is wonderful. God is just. Meanwhile, they didn't have that genuine dialogue that Job had with God. So God doesn't want us to just go around saying what we think God wants us to hear. He wants us to talk to him and just tell him exactly what's on our mind, exactly how we feel. And in that vulnerability and in that honesty, in that realness, God can do something in our hearts. He can create in us a new heart. He can claw away the layers so that we can be free, that we can experience joy. Remember in the beginning of the chapter, it said that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You see, because God is light, when he draws near to us, our darkness is revealed. And it's not exposed for judgment. That's not the purpose. It's revealed so that we can realize it's there and, and, and let it go and give it to God, who then hurls it right as far away as the east is from the west. And so he reveals it so that we can get rid of it. It's like doing an MRI scan so you can see where the tumor is so that the, the surgeon can cut it out and get rid of it, right? So you, you, should, you don't have to be afraid of exposure because exposure is not for condemnation. The exposure is to make us free, is to make us whole. And so I want us to spend a little bit of time this morning in that honest, real conversation with God. If you've never done it before, here's how I do it. I just say to God, God, is there anything, any unconfessed sin in my heart? Is there anything in, in what I've said, what I've thought, in attitude today or lately that I haven't yet confessed? And then I sit there in silence and God will bring to my mind a memory of an unkind word I said or a negative attitude that I had. And as that memory comes, as soon as it comes to my mind, I confess it straight away. And I say what I teach Micah to say, forgive me for having done this because it hurt, right? It's always um, in, in counselors are taught, right? We're taught to say, this is what I did. This is how it affected others. This is how it affected me, right? to confess that and then and then ask God is there anything else and as as God brings it just keep doing it do it do it do it until you can't either run out of time or you can't, God doesn't bring any more to your mind and why is this important 
you know, this sermon is called The Science of Forgiveness, right? And, I want, and I, I've, I've done some research, and remember how Dr. Brene Brown found in her research that secrecy and silence lead to shame, right? And the shame leads to destructive, addictive behavior that numbs us from, from that joyful relationship. Well, there's been other research done as well about confessions. And I'll just share two with you. Um, there's one that showed that partial confession may actually be worse than a full confession. They did this experiment where they had people, um, you know, do this game and they didn't, the people didn't realize this, but they were given a chance to cheat. And a lot of people cheated. Um, and then afterwards they were given a chance to confess whether they've cheated or not. And what they found was that those who partially confessed, meaning let's say they cheated 10 times, but they're like, Oh, I cheated five times. Right. Um, after that, they didn't, you know, had had um, a survey of their view of themselves, um, their view of, of the credibility of others and uh, their mood, etc. And they had controls and all that. But what they found was that those who only partially confessed felt worse about themselves and others and, you know, overall mood than those who didn't confess at all as well as those who fully confessed. which is interesting. And in another experiment um, that involved expressive writing where you basically write out, uh, you you explore your deepest thoughts and feelings about an upsetting experience that you've had, they found that those who uh, fully were completely honest about that experience and how they felt, that through that expressive writing, they found that their stress levels were reduced, um, they had better sleep and cardiovascular function, and better mental health. But again, they found that if the person was not completely honest, that it actually made them feel worse. Okay, Their stress levels went up, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm bringing this to say, it's so important for us to confess and be completely honest with God. And again, it's not because... God doesn't already know, and it's not because you know God is there with a checklist to see if you got them all. No, He's. It's because it heals us, right? It 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 shows us. Oh yeah, it makes us aware. For example, when and I pray, I often you know go into that time of confession, and God will bring something to mind, and I realize, oh, I really, I didn't realize I had been so rude, but now I, I can see why it was such a rude thing to say or do, and that then leads me to either go to that person and apologize, or even if. I don't, at least now I'm more aware for next time. So going through that time of confession, right? Going through that um, searching process, asking God to search our hearts, allows us to have that, that healing and that freedom and you know, all these scientific benefits as, as well as that joy of fellowship with God, knowing that God and I were good, knowing that myself and others were good, right? We can be at one in fellowship and unity. So there's going to be some music in the background and I would like you to spend that moment in silent prayer to God. Alternatively, if you're not comfortable doing that, uh, feel free to reflect on these verses that I've got on the screen um, and just read them silently to yourself. And when the music finishes, I'll invite the praise team to close us up.